This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, the pushiest podcast in the business. My name is Mark McGee, and today we are going to be talking about parallel design inspiration, and we are going to be breaking all the rules with breaking into board games. Breaking into board games, by the way, I'll, I'll tell you where all my references come from, from my uh, jokes. I say <laughs> jokes in air quotes. Uh, breaking into board games is a podcast with friends, and one of those friends from Breaking into Board Games is on the podcast today. Tony Miller. Say hello, Tony. Sure, why not? Hello, everybody. Hey, hey. And we also have Yudi, Kevin Yudi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> now the <laughs> this is a uh, this is highly irregular that we we have someone who's actually not part of the Game Designers of North Carolina group here, but we uh, we wanted to do something extremely interesting, and I was so fascinated by this concept that I said, "Hey, yeah, let's do this." You know, like I sometimes do. So Tony and Kevin are both game designers. Both of these people have designed a game that's coming out soon. And both of these games have a unique hook. And the unique hook is the same. Everything else is pretty different. But that's interesting. And we want to talk about that because like... How does that even happen? You know, that's that's kind of where uh, where the idea for the episode came from. So here we are. So we're going to get into that in a second. But first things first. All right. Tell me something good. Who's got some good news that you would like to share with anyone who's listening? Well, one thing I can say is my new publishing venture, New Mill Industries with uh, Daniel Newman, has successfully completed its first ever Kickstarter, and uh, we are now moving into that wonderful phase of production where we're figuring out what all we need to order, who all we need to contact, when Kickstarter will give us our money, all of that other good stuff. But uh, the Kickstarter was incredibly successful by the uh, standards and goals that we had set for ourselves. Uh, We had 395 unique backers and raised just over 13k. So it was exactly what we were hoping to do with our weird little niche punk rock publishing company. Yeah, it seems neat because uh, obviously you've done you've done a significant amount of work on the design side of things, but to learn and experience and do some of the stuff on the other side of things, publishing stuff and and everything that happens once your design is at the stage where you're ready to sell it to people, I bet this is just a prediction, maybe a bold prediction, that you will learn something exciting that will improve not just your ability to publish games but also like more considerations and in- interesting things you can bring into future designs too i bet absolutely absolutely and um one of the things that we've already learned is really listening to what your audience tells you we were setting out to be a very tiny niche publishing company like we didn't want to be the next renegade that's not uh, the goal couldn't be further from our minds. We were looking to just make some cool stuff and get it in the hands of people who might like it. Throughout the whole process, we had people give us very like clear and awesome feedback that they might have given us at a table, 
were we playtesting the game with them, you know, back before the times of COVID. But we ended up changing the card backs mm. in uh, m- multiple decks. One, to make it so that it was uh, was symmetrical, regardless of which way the card was facing, because it made more sense for the game. And the other, uh, to make two decks of cards e- more easy to tell apart, rather than just color, we changed actually the colors of the fonts to make it even clearer that they're two separate decks. And it was very interesting, because the request came in, because both sets of cards are gray. Um, one's a light gray, one's a dark gray. The whole game is gray, white, black, and red. But... The, request the three primary because, colors. Yeah. The request came in because somebody wanted to be able to play the game via candlelight, which is a consideration I had never in my life had when designing a game, was can somebody play this game by candlelight? Now, I'm not aware of whether this was a um, romantic idea or that this was just they wanted to fit the steampunk spooky mood of the game and play it in a more thematic ambiance. I don't know what their reasoning is, but it was one of those things that had never come up as a designer was, can this game be played via candlelight? And I think thinking about lighting and the lighting that people use is something that uh, I'm going to be doing a lot more in the future because I can imagine people wanting to play a game in bars and having to deal with the mood lighting in a bar um, would be a consideration to keep in mind if that's a venue that you want your game to be played in. Hmm. That's it. That is interesting. Yeah, the, the main place that uh, I played in pre-worldwide pandemic uh, was at a local pizza place and brewery that had fairly limited lighting. Mm-hmm. And there were times when we there were colors we couldn't tell apart mm-hmm. under that lighting. Yeah, I play um, I play in the garage. I have uh, a relative who comes over. It's still COVID times, so it's just people mm-hmm. that are like in my circle of relatives who live mm-hmm. like, in my area. But yeah. And we play in the garage, so we still have like separation from stuff. And yeah, the the lighting in the garage is not always the same as it is in my living room. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I can definitely see why uh, the visuals could take that extra layer of consideration. That, yeah, that's an interesting thing to think about. Yudi, what you have happening is pretty good. Well, I've um, had some good design interactions recently. I'm uh, currently working on two different co-designs. Um, oh, sounds terrible. <laughs> but it's nice because uh, the other person can make progress, and then it feels like you've done something with your game when you haven't. It's the other person who did the work. Stop so giving away the nice. secrets. <laughs> So yeah, I've uh, it's it's been good. I've been working uh, with Amelia from the Game Designers of North Carolina on uh, a door mystery based board game, and uh, I've been working with Julio Nazario from right here in Asheville on Bomb Squad Love Triangle. Huh. One of the things I've been doing recently. So I started. I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I mentioned it slightly differently this time. Started making a new game, and the the interesting part about it is a brand new game that's never existed before like it doesn't it doesn't have anything like a lot of the games where i've spent a lot of my time more recently have been designs that i've started significantly further in the past so i'm far enough away from the beginning that it's like okay i have kind of the core i just need to make the core better and make it work cool and make it easy to use and that sort of stuff but the considerations about 
I have this high level kind of ethereal concept and I mm -hmm. want it to exist in the physical realm as a game. How do I translate this conceptual thing into the physical world? And that that is a strange transition. It's weird enough that I actually was not sure I could even do it because the last time I did it was like a long time ago. Mm. Um, but what has happened within like the past couple of weeks is that I actually did that part. So now I'm at the part where it's not like, is this concept something that can even exist in the physical world? It is now, okay, can I actually make this into a decent game? Which is it's like 90% of the work is already done. <laughs> <laughs> All that's left is about ninety percent more. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but so that so that's good. I I I like that because uh, creating creating iteration one is so strange. Like creating something from like a vague concept that yeah that can be barely said to exist at all. And then creating something that I can hold in my hands and like interact with. That yeah, that's that's the weird part. And so it happened, and that's cool. And I'm happy now. Well, awesome. I'm happy frequently. I continue to be happy even <laughs> after this thing has happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so Tony, we we are breaking the rules on this episode. So we haven't done a whole lot in the order of uh, introducing you. But let me let me just do a quick plug for breaking into board games because what we've done is actually like 30 minutes ago we got done recording. Uh, we I say we I was just sitting there because I'm not even on the episode. But <laughs> everybody else was recording an episode of Breaking Into Board Games, which is a podcast where they uh, they have the perspectives of designer, publisher, and developer, developer asking questions, interviewing a guest. The guest of that episode was Kevin Yudi. And they wanted to talk about Yudi's game, Red Cap Ruckus, especially as it kind of relates to uh, Tony's game, Kabuto Sumo, because they have a, a unique hook in common. And so there's some conversation about that. We are extending the conversation into here, looking more from like a, a design and development sort of perspective, kind of trying to get in some of the nitty gritty design details about it. But anything that we don't say in here there's a decent chance that it was covered in that other episode. So you can check it out. We'll have the link to it as soon as we have the link to it in our show notes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Tony, do you want to take like a couple minutes and just introduce yourself since we have never really heard from you before? Sure, sure. Uh, so my name's Tony Miller. I am not in North Carolina, which I understand is a very um, harsh violation of the way that the rules work typically on yeah, this we podcast. Don't, we don't always hate everyone who's not from North Carolina. But well, I didn't we at, say you hated them. We at they least, don't often guest on the podcast. Yeah, we at least pretend that we do. Ah, gotcha. I mean, you guys do have official colors. That's right. Which I'm unaware of any other groups that really do. The The designers <laughs> up here in the Pacific Northwest, like we have a couple of playtest groups like Playtest Northwest, and they're very hesitant to adopt things like official colors and team jerseys the way you guys have. Uh, I, I think they're worried there will be some sort of a fight that breaks out. But regardless of all of that, <laughs> I am up in the Pacific Northwest. I am a game designer and a podcaster, as has already been mentioned. Uh, my first game was Fire in the Library from Weird Giraffe Games. I co-designed that with John Prather. Um, since then, I moved from Kentucky, where I met John, out to Portland, and have been uh, just kind of hanging out, doing my own thing here. Kabuto Sumo is my second signed design. 
and there's a lot of other things that I've designed but haven't quite gone anywhere with yet. Um, they're all still back burner. Eventually, we will uh, see whether or not any of them can be given new life, like Frankenstein's monster. But for now, uh, I've been focusing on New Mill Industries and getting it off the ground with uh, my friend Daniel Newman's game Science and Science Society as our first official published game. So now that that Kickstarter is over, I'm going to be focusing much more on design again. And the next game that we put out through my publishing company is going to be one of mine called Rivet Heads which we've been working on for a while. So that's me in a very uh, loquacious nutshell. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so Kabuto Sumo and Red Cap Ruckus. Here's, here's the uh, very high-level pitch. All right, and this is where I want to start, and then you guys are going to fill in all the gaps. All right? Yep. Um, yep. There's, there's a bunch of discs on a platform, and what you do is you push more discs on this platform and push stuff around, and that's it. That's the, that. That's, <laughs> that's it. The entire game. All right, let's just end this podcast. Which game because, are you talking about? Yeah, I'm so, not um, sure. So what that is? So that's like a thirty-nine thousand foot level hook concept. But um, when you look at these closer, what I found is interesting is a lot of the smaller, smaller than the. Uh, a lot of the design decisions in the games are significantly different. In fact, the games are not, they're not really the same sorts of games. They just have that one hook in common. So that's kind of what I wanted to get down into. So from that perspective, let's start with like some of the the inspiration. What prompted each of you to make a game about pushing discs around and off of platforms? So the, the original yeah. idea came from those quarter pusher machines that I, I grew up with them at the county fair. Once a year, the county fair would come and they had these machines with a bulldozer and you'd put your quarters in and and you'd think that it was going to push quarters off the edge and it usually didn't. But when it did, it was exciting. But it was also frustrating because you had to spend a lot of quarters to play those games. And I had been wanting to use that mechanic for ages uh, in a game and had tried different things. And there had always been a reason they didn't work until all of a sudden the breakthrough happened. So what was it about the the coin pusher machines that was the most that made you want to make a game about it? Like you said, obviously, it was frustrating because you kept on losing quarters. Like, I guess that's not a part that you specifically set out to replicate. What what aspects about it did you find compelling enough to try to you know design a game with that as one of its cores? No, I was not aiming for frustration. The main thing is that you you feel like you're going to be in control. You feel like you can see what's going to happen. You know what to do to make the thing you want to happen happen. And then physics of the universe take it in a different direction oh the universe um, as I, I say discs don't behave that's right i like to re like in my mind it's related to the idea of dice that like this idea that you can make your dice roll better i remember as a kid my uh my my grandparents were visiting us at our house and we were playing some game with dice. I was so young. I don't even have any idea what, what it was. But I remember him rolling the dice between his hands and then blowing on them and asking why he was doing that. And it was to make them roll better. And it's that, that idea. I think it's hard to still get that with dice in the board game world because it's hard to convince somebody that you can actually control what the dice do. Mm -hmm. But with the discs... 
you still have that feeling. Like there's a reason you should have some control over what they're going to do, but they don't play fair. You know, that's yeah. that's interesting because if you like imagine a flawless actor and they know all of the uh, laws of physics and friction <laughs> and direction and impact and stuff, they could theoretically push a disc and do exactly what they want, right? Is I mean, isn't that true? I Theoretically, mean, no... yes, but it's like any physics problem where you say, so what we're going to do is we're going to start in a frictionless vacuum, and from that assumption, we're now going to do some math to prove that this is possible. And unfortunately, like the like a lot of example physics problems, um, we don't live in a frictionless vacuum. It doesn't always do exactly what you want. And I guess a die, you could do the same thing. If you were a perfect actor on the die, you could roll it and have it interact with the table at the exact right spin to get a perfect six every single time. In yeah. in the same way, I guess the, the yeah. complexity of the calculations exactly would be... Where, how much force you needed to throw it with, how hard you you throw it, um, where you hit it, on what angle. Like All of those things could potentially be calculated, but it's not what the human mind or the human brain does whenever they engage with a physics problem. Like When you go to throw a baseball to somebody, you don't sit there and like mentally start doing math calculating the distance and how hard you need to throw it you make a guesstimate based on like well they're about that far away this is probably the arc i need i'm gonna put this much effort behind it and it gets there or it doesn't everybody's experienced people under throwing or overthrowing their target anybody who's thrown wads of paper at a trash can can be aware that you can't always 100 of the time sink that shot no matter how often you've done it or how good you've practiced it so games that play with physics have that element to them. And my inspiration was also coin pushers as well. But mine came in via my son. When Fire in the Library came to my house, I was so excited to have my first published game design. And I was sharing it with everybody and I was seeing people get their copies and play it. And they were sharing it online and it was like this amazing highlight of my life like i did this my first published design is out in the world it's real people are playing with it it's awesome and then like i show a copy to my son and at the time my son wasn't reading and fire in the library has text on its cards so he couldn't play the full version of fire in the library he could be excited for me that i had a cool game and he knew dad was excited but he didn't it wasn't something that could engage him. He wasn't at that level yet. And so when I went to design Kabuto Sumo, I was specifically wanting to design a game for him. And so the first thing I did was just kind of sit around and think about all the things he loves. And in the before times, one of his favorite things was to go to the various arcades and play coin pusher games. And like... As frustrating as it is to constantly lose your money, which he would go into an arcade and promptly spend all of his money in a coin pusher game, like the entire amount. He would find it and then all of his money be gone. That one moment, that one moment when all of the coins cascade off the edge in a waterfall is the happiest moment he has ever experienced in his life at that point in time. Like, I'm sure there are other times he's probably been happier, but you wouldn't know it from looking at his face, from seeing his mannerisms, from seeing how into it he is. And so I wanted games, I wanted a game where that experience of knocking things off 
was part of the game, was something you got to do over and over again, and you didn't have to continually spend quarters to get it. Like, that was the thing that, the initial hook that I thought would get my son interested in it. And it did. So when I made my first prototype, I just went and grabbed discs out of my box of catacombs and a sheet of paper. And at the time, I drew a rectangle on it. And we were just pushing discs onto the board, trying to knock stuff off so we could score it for points. And that was only so interesting to him. Um, he wasn't reading. He wasn't as advanced at math to even be like doing a lot of keeping track of points and stuff. Like he could do it, but it could wasn't he calculate the physics of the uh, the coefficient of friction and the angles of the trajectory of the discs <laughs> that he was pushing. No, but one of the things that I started to notice was the difference in behavior in playing the game. So, like hmm. when adults play Kabuto Sumo. They approach it almost like an abstract chess game or like Crokinole or like some or pool, like some game where they are like very much calculating the angles and paying attention to how they're going to push the piece on and where is the most optimal place for me to do this. Watching my son, who at the time was six when I first started developing and he turned seven pretty quickly thereafter, watching him play it was a totally different experience. He's just like, here's where it needs to go. Here's where it needs to go. Like, I I jokingly called it slamming and banging because, like, there was no, like, critical thinking, no stopping to analyze the board. It was literally just, I'm taking this disc and I'm putting it right here. Um, And it was so cool to see that the same game could be played two different ways and both were completely valid. Like, I was having fun being more thoughtful. He was having fun basically, you know, slamming things in there. And so it worked in both regards. And anytime he knocked pieces off, it was the greatest thing ever. So that was one of those, one of those things was like, okay, okay, so I'm on to something here. Like, my son likes this activity, but it's not really a game right now. Yeah, I, yeah, I can already <laughs> that, start to see, even from the the kind of initial inspirations, they, I mean, they seem to be heading in different directions, even from, like, some of the subtleties, like, just trying to find something that your son would have a lot of fun with, and, like, having some sort of admiration for the the uncertainty of, of how the, you know, coin pushing actually functions. Those, those are... Uh, I mean, they're both inherent to the systems, but yeah, I can see how they are already kind of heading in slightly different directions. So I noticed in hearing you talk about this, Tony, some interesting similarities and differences that Mm -hmm. the similarity that stood out to me with all of my designs, I think a lot about, I want the game to be a just a lot of fun to play, whether you're winning or losing. Mm -hmm. And that is something that it sounds like you like also really valued seeing that with your son. Let me ask you this. Did you ever try with quarters? Was was that ever part of the design process? Um, well, no. Um, initially, <laughs> simply because we don't keep change around the house anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And that's like a ridiculous thing to say, but that was one of the first things I looked for was like pocket change. And we didn't have enough to do anything with. Yeah, so, I, I did try it out with quarters many times, and it never went anywhere like it didn't Mm. it always seemed like nothing fun is happening this is taking forever um but what one of the things i noticed so you you initially started with the the wooden discs from catacombs yeah and i initially started with 
poker chips from mm-hmm. my thing of poker chips. And the final games, yours is wooden discs and mine is poker chips. Yes. And it's interesting that that fairly arbitrary decision of what do I have on hand that I can do this with it, um, it, it made it all the way. It was an arbitrary decision in some ways and in other ways it wasn't. So mm-hmm. the wooden discs were what I had on hand. I have poker chips too. The mm-hmm. reason I reached for the wooden discs is because I was specifically designing for my son and I wanted something that could engage his manual dexterity at his level. So my my brain initially went to companies like Haba or companies that make games for younger kids. And they usually use bigger, chunkier, thicker wooden pieces. And so, like, that's where the initial, like, what can I get that's like this? And catacombs just happen to be the answer. But, like, specifically, I was like, okay, so what's something that my son would just have fun playing with? Because one of the things that I love about Haba games and uh, playing them with my son is that we could just completely ignore the rules and just play with the big, chunky wooden pieces and still have a good time. So, like, Animal Upon Animal is still a box of animals you can make fun noises with yes. and fight each other with. Monza is still a box of race cars you can pretend to race each other with, whether you ever even touch the dice or the rule booklet. And so the first thing that, like, came to my mind was big, chunky wooden pieces because I knew it was something that he would be used to interacting with and because I knew it was something that his tiny little kid hands could manipulate with a finer degree of precision. That's interesting. My my son was also six at the time I started designing. Oh, that's awesome. He, at school, his teacher used poker chips as uh, kind of a, a bonus system and they called mm-hmm. them, they call them galleons. And so he, oh. he still refers to them as galleons. Awesome. That's um, fantastic. But it was also, it was the thing he was familiar with and used mm-hmm. to playing with at that time oh that's so cool yeah so well you uh you're the components in red cap ruckus you say it's mostly it's, it's poker chips but like there's some other like pusher pieces that you have though right like it but all the pieces themselves are similar sized shaped objects yeah i actually so this i think this is one of the areas where Playtesting led Red Cap Ruckus and Kabuto Sumo in different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually did playtesting with lots of different shapes of pieces and ultimately came back to all of the player pieces being identical size discs mm-hmm. and all discs except for uh, a few twigs that one of the pieces gets to use in addition. But I, I tried many different shapes and different sidedness and ultimately returned to just circles. Whereas you have some pretty interesting pieces yeah. in Kudosumo. So the game that I initially pitched had only discs. It had discs in three sizes. It had the small discs, the medium discs, and the large discs. And what drove me to use the different sizes of discs was actually incentivizing player action. So in Kabuto Sumo, there are two ways to win the game. One way is to knock your opponent's beetle off the ring. Each player only has one player piece. All of the other pieces are neutral pieces. The other way is to run them out of pieces. So whenever you push a piece onto the board, your primary objective, most likely, is to try and get your opponent closer to the edge to knock them off. 
and win the game. The secondary objective is to try and knock pieces off of the board so that you have additional pieces to keep pushing onto the board in later rounds. And so trying to balance those two goals of... Is this getting me more, is this more offensive uh, minded and trying to win the game one way? Or is this to get more material so I can win the game later? And then there's the third consideration of, am I just pushing something onto the board to keep my beetle on the board and playing defensively? So the three different types of discs came about to incentivize player actions specifically because larger discs are more valuable. They cover more area, more surface area, Mm -hmm. and allow you to push farther into the structure. So being able to gather the larger discs is more, there's more incentive to get those. However, sometimes you can just get a whole bunch of small discs and stay in the game long after your opponent has run out of material. So it creates an interesting dynamic. I love the discs because, as I said before, discs don't behave. Right, yes. They don't push in straight lines. They like to rotate against each other. One of the most incredible things is when you push a disc on the board and all of the discs that are currently there just choose to envelop it and <laughs> fill up the empty space rather than go anywhere you wanted them to go. Mm-hmm. which happens quite a bit because they're discs and they'll just rotate around each other and do whatever discs do. And so that creates this emergent gameplay, like you said, of you're changing the state of the board, but you can't entirely be sure of how it's going to change. You just have to kind of react to it, which acted as kind of like a, um, I don't want to say a rubber banding mechanism, but more like a uh, player skill level balancing issue. I could sit there and contemplate my pushes onto the board, figure out the angles, do all of this, you know, heavy thought, like I'm some sort of, you know, master, and slide my piece on the board and have it do not at all what I want to do. And then my son could just, by gut intuition, bang something onto the board and have it do exactly what he'd planned on without there being a lot of thought behind it. And the fact that both of those things could continue working was one of the things that I was most excited about with the design. Before anybody else ever played it, my son and I had played it about a hundred times. Or, or maybe even more than that, because I was home with him after work. My wife worked in the evening, so after I got off work, it was it was daddy rough time. And one of the things we did was just hang out and work on this game together and playtested the crap out of it, which led to all sorts of interesting developments. But yeah, part of it's also the incentive of seeing him get really excited that he got a larger piece off of the board. I'm not going to lie. Like, there's just that genuine (laughs) element of his little celebrations when he would get the bigger pieces were one of the reasons why I decided to keep them. And if they were all big pieces, there would be no distinction there anymore, so it wouldn't be as special. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. What, uh, so, Yudi, what, uh, you said after trying different shapes, you came back to, uh, all the same size and shape discs. What, uh, what sort of things for you suggested that you come back to that? The main thing was that the circles would do were the the best kind of unpredictable if you will um at one point i tried using gears with the Mm. idea that gears could you could actually turn the piece you were putting on and change things that were out there and you had a little bit of control but it wasn't the the uncertainty was not an interesting kind of uncertainty the circles did that one thing correct me if i'm wrong about this tony but 
with your game, are you supposed to just push straight on? Is that right? With Kabuto? Yes. Yes. There's no, um, basically you're pushing in a straight line. It doesn't have to be towards the center of the board. Mm-hmm. So you can do like lateral style pushes across the edge or whatever. The big thing is that you push in a straight line. Once you've started pushing, you don't change your vector at all yeah. until the piece is completely on the board. That is, Several people suggested that with Red Cap Ruckus. That was not what came natural to me. And but when people suggested it, we tried it. But the way Red Cap Ruckus started and the way it ended, you actually can kind of finagle that piece. As mm. long as the only piece you touch is the one you're sliding on. Mm-hmm. And as long as your hand never goes above the, the actual board. Like, you are mm. not allowed to touch above the board. You can actually do things side to side and move like things around. Yes, mm-hmm. you can do wiggling and all, which mm-hmm. is a it's a very different system. But yes. that actually led to, like, I at one point I tried long skinny pieces. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Tony, but for a, for a while, before I knew about Kabuto Sumo, Red Cap Ruckus went through a phase where it was bugs fighting oh, that's on top awesome. of a mushroom. And I did not know about that. That's cool to hear. <laughs> yeah, the and one of the factions was June bugs because my yes. daughter absolutely loves catching June bugs. We um, mm-hmm. while I was working out, we I learned about this from my mom. You can catch a June bug and tie a thread to its leg, and it can, and then you hold the other end of the thread, and it'll fly around like a little pet on a string and it's great and then when you're done you just untie it and let it go so one of the factions was the june bugs and the but eventually they became gnomes but at one point i was working with different bugs and different shapes and there was a long skinny one and the problem that didn't work with the being able to finagle thing being able to to Mm -hmm. to work with it and twist it around because with that ability, if you had a long skinny thing, you could basically just sweep along the side of the board yep. and clear half the board all in one go. Yep. Um, and so I ended up actually breaking that down into several shorter pieces because you can still push straight on with short pieces, but you can't swipe across the board. Yep. Um, I also tried different you know, experimenting with all kinds of things. Uh, early on, I tried hexagons. But when you've got two flat sides opposite each other, it just pushes straight across. You you yep. do have control then. Yeah, you know so exactly tried, what it's going to yeah. do. Yep. So I tried an odd number, like five-sided and three-sided ones. And They call those they, triangles. I know they, about that one, the three-sided ones. You know the name of that? Yeah. yeah. Triangle? That one? Yep. That's uh-huh. it. And, <laughs> we, and again, it was the they didn't always do what you expected them to do, but mm-hmm. not in the interesting way that Circles did it. So I the the game I originally pitched had the three different disc sizes. The developers who got a hold of it once I'd signed it with board game tables actually introduced unique shaped pieces for each of the wrestlers. And they just, like, went whole hog, like, we're going to print a whole bunch of different shapes and see what's fun. Mm -hmm. And then they played a whole ton of games just to see what worked. And rounded shapes really are best. But some of the irregular shapes that they came up with also worked. 
worked. But like one of the pieces is like a a cactus shape. One of the pieces is like a looks like a teardrop. Some of the other pieces are specifically designed to sit on top of other pieces. Because one of the early problems I was having is that I needed to make sure there was enough material on the board that players would regularly knock off enough stuff to stay in the game because running out of pieces while it is a running your opponent out of pieces while it is a victory condition it's the less satisfying victory condition yeah um, yep. unless you're Daniel Newman and then you play a starvation strategy in every game you play um, uh, but he just wanted to see if it would work and we kept calibrating it until it wasn't too easy so the initial setups start with pieces stacked on top of each other not because it looks cool, although it does, but because when those pieces get knocked off, when they go back onto the board, they're separate pieces. And so they take up more surface area, which means that more pieces get knocked off consistently for the rest of the game. So it was a way of solving the problem. And since I already had some pieces that were stacked, the developers decided, you know what? What if we had a piece that was a unique player piece that you put on something, and when it gets knocked off, it does something. And so all of the asymmetric wrestler ability that exist are um, a product of uh, John Brieger and Michael Dunsmore, uh, who did the development on the game. And I was really skeptical at first because I was like, what are you doing? You're adding all these crazy pieces to my simple, elegant, asymm like my simple, elegant game. And then you want to add asymmetric player powers on top of it and all of this other stuff. And it ended up addressing two concerns uh, that we initially had with the game. And one was that games would play out too similarly without a little bit more randomness in it. Now, like we talked about, discs don't do what you want, and the emergent gameplay is there. Much like in games of pool or crokinole, sometimes you miss a shot, or sometimes the disc just doesn't do what you want it to do, or your angle was wrong, or whatever. All of those things exist. But they wanted there to be something different and unique between games, so that it didn't feel like you were in one long game of Kabuto Sumo, that there was something else that could break it up a bit. That was the first reason. And the second reason is that there were a lot of people who really just wanted crazy, colorful pieces. Like, one of the biggest suggestions was that. And it's funny that you bring up the finagling and the wiggling, because a lot of people wanted to do that. And, like, it's a very human instinct to want to do that. But what I discovered in playing with my son is that in order to give everybody the illusion of fairness, I had to take that away. Because if you could steer your piece, then it was like cheating. Whereas if you're just pushing it straight on, you're more at the um, behest of what physics wants to do rather than your own conscious decision. So it was just one of those interesting things. I don't think either way is wrong, but I yeah, think I'm that the unique pieces in Kabuto Sumo would only be possible without the ability to wiggle them around. I'm actually fascinated for when you and I get to sit down and play with each other because we're both used to playing our own games mm -hmm. with different styles. And so we'll, we'll be coming to the other person's game with a style that may not actually match the rules of that mm -hmm. game. And I'm so really are, curious about it. What are the victory conditions inside of Red Cap Ruckus? Yeah, so in Red I thought Cap that was Ruckus, interesting because 
a lot of your component pieces, Tony, that you had mentioned seemed to be almost like a in response to how how you decided to win the game. You know what what the goals are in the victory conditions? Because yeah, you mentioned mm-hmm. the different size discs allowed. Uh, sometimes you push people off. Sometimes you just outlast people. And yeah, that's something that I was I was hoping to get back to. Yeah. So one other difference that I'm going to mention before we get into the victory conditions is Kabuto Sumo begins with the board completely full of pieces. Mm-hmm. And Red Cap Ruckus begins with the board completely empty. Mm-hmm. And so you're pushing every piece on and trying to put them where you want them as you, you enter the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in Red Cap Ruckus, you get points for basically for every piece Every opponent piece that you knock off, you get points for. And there's a champion that's worth more, and there is the Great Crystal in the middle of the the mushroom top battlefield that's worth the most points. But just because you get the crystal doesn't necessarily mean you'll win the game. Mm -hmm. Um, So it creates that situation of... I'm in a position where I could take the great crystal, but then the game would end and I would have lost it for myself. Mm. So as you're playing, you're slowly, you're, you're accumulating points. You're knocking more of your enemies off the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And are the points public knowledge? They are, yes, because mm-hmm. you can see it as it's going and, and they, mm-hmm. they stay out invisible. Okay. Um, so you know, you know how well you're doing and you know what you need to try and do to continue winning. So my initial design was actually playing four points with the different size discs being different amounts of points. The smaller discs, because they were harder to move across the surface, were worth more points, and the larger discs were less points, but they were more fun to push on, so that was kind of the balancing act. My son was not at all interested in counting points. Initially, I did not have player pieces at all. My initial design was just all discs, and you were basically just trying to score the most points. And my Um, initial design was that each player had one champion, and all you cared about was knocking the other player's champion off. (laughs) Oh my gosh! We we crossed paths. We did. We diverged. And um, (laughs) it's one of those things, like, one of the earliest suggestions from playtesters, once I started playtesting with gamers, Mm -hmm. um, one of the earliest suggestions was, well, we should play for points because I don't like the binary (laughs) win-loss state. Uh-huh. There needs to be some points aspect to it. And I was thinking to myself, I, like, Roth, that is never going to fly with my son. Like, he would want to count, he would either A, not count the points at all and just do whatever is fun and then be upset when he loses because he wasn't paying attention to the number of points everybody had. Or B, obsess over how many points everybody has and literally count them every turn to find out where everybody stood. And both of those made for a less fun experience it slowed the game down it I seems think like the main thing oh go ahead oh i was gonna say it seems like the uh the victory condition of of points for opponent's pieces you knock off you said the the opponent's pieces stay out there so like if all the pieces are uh the same size poker chip you really just make a stack of yours and a stack of your opponents to count mm-hmm. points which is right. the strength of having every single piece being the same mm-hmm. which is different than in your game tony which has all those different pieces so the stacking yep. to figure out stuff it would just not work as well so it's it's interesting how right. even even those victory conditions uh also helps shape you know what will work better and what will will not work mm-hmm. better for that design that yeah that's neat and here's something i else i think of affected that one of the main reasons 
that I went away from the, your goal is just to knock the other champion off, was because Red Cap Ruckus was primarily developing as a four-player game. Mm-hmm. And it in a two-player game, it was obvious Mm-hmm. You can play until the other person's champion off, and that's a clear win. You've you've beat them. Mm-hmm. But in a four-player game, do you have to knock all three of the other players' champions off? And if you do, does that mean that once one player's champion's been knocked off, are they out of the game? And if not, what's the point in staying in? And so I think the fact that Red Cap Ruckus developed primarily as a four-player game that could also be played. You know, it, it had to work just as well four-player as it did three-player and two-player. Yeah. Um, I, affected that. When I originally designed it, mine was two-player only. Mm-hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. I think player count directly affected it. Um, if you're playing with two people, why are we counting points? Let's just, you know, game's right. over. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. win. Next game, re-rack. Like, once somebody sinks the eight ball, we're done. I don't need to play the rest of the balls to find out how much longer it took you. And so it was primarily designed that way. And when I brought it to Origins on a whim, it wasn't what I was intending to pitch. It wasn't anything I was intending to, like, show around. I just wanted to bring it because it was brand new. I was excited about it. And other designers wanted to see it. I was just going to show it to other designers. Um, I wasn't even going to do anything further with it. I was like, this has had three weeks of development. I'm not ready to pitch this to anybody yet. So I brought it, and the response to people playing it was such, much like your experience, I, I had to start showing it to people. Right. <laughs> um, it's like, the, the, I'm never going to design anything that gets people this excited again that they suddenly start an impromptu 12-person tournament in the middle of the unpub room at a major convention. Like, no way. This is, I've got to, like, strike while the iron is hot, as it were. And the first thing that came up from everybody was, well, does it play more than two? And it's like, no, not currently, but let me work on it and I'll figure it out. So I played a whole bunch of different versions of it, trying to figure that out. Three-player ended up being fairly easy, and eliminating the kingmaker problem by basically whoever pushes a player off wins. And the running out of pieces still exists, and that if you run out of pieces, you're out. But now, you're also no longer, you're, you're still a target for winning the game. It's just whoever knocks your piece off the board wins. So... You're, man- you're still managing your piece count and you're still, you don't want to push somebody too close to the edge because you may be handing somebody else the victory if they can then swoop in and scoop up your, you know, kill steal, as it were. So three player worked fine um, with a few more uh, pieces of material and a different setup. Four player was more challenging. I tried all sorts of different things. Um, Initially, I thought, well, we're going to need more space for a different size board. The initial version of the game restricted you to only pushing pieces in on your side of the board. But once it's no longer a two-player game, that restriction kind of flies out the window because either you don't have enough space to actually manipulate the board in your tiny slice that you've been afforded, or you have to cut up the board in some weird, bizarre way. So, like, the initial four-player game, everybody was able to push in on half of the board, Mm -hmm. but their half, one quarter of their half was shared with two other players, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense to me. (laughs) Yeah, I I, tried it that way, right? I already have an image of that in my head, so yeah. Yeah, actually, actually, for me, it was three players was the one that gave the trouble, mm-hmm. and two player and four player worked great from the beginning. And but the reason is that uh, Red Cap Ruckus started out on a square board, mm-hmm. and so <laughs> you 
would either two-player, four-player was obvious. Everybody had one side to come in from. Yep. And two-player was straightforward. Yeah, opposite but it, side. But it yeah. never seemed fair for three-player because two people were across from each other and the one person had a whole, the person on the side had a whole different game. And yep. it was it was almost, a, it was that stroke of insight. It may have even been the night before I took it to Unpub. It was Let's definitely the, a week, the week before I took it to Unpub for sure that I was like, this should be a circle. Yeah. And then it's perfect. However, with Red Cap Ruckus, it has stayed. I experimented with it, but it it started where you have your section of the board that you come in from. I I actually think that so the Red Cap Ruckus board and pieces the board is larger than the Kabuto Sumo yes. board, and the fact that you come on from an empty board, those two things may have affected the way only having your section of the board to enter from. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, yeah, you have a whole different kind of control. You have a different set of choices on where you want to try and push in. Mm-hmm. If you're limited to uh, you're limited to one small section of the board, but you can twist and turn your piece as you're bringing it on, mm-hmm. versus you allowing can come you from any side, but you yeah. come straight. Yeah, that's awesome. The way I rounded, I ended up at a circular board is because it became a game about sumo, and the sumo ring is a <laughs> ring. Um, like, how's that for arbitrary? But no, like, it's my, my arbitrary. The reason the, the Red Cap Ruckus board is the size it is is mm-hmm. because that's how big the lid of my pot that I got out of the kitchen cabinet to trace onto the board was. <laughs> there you go. I um, So what I did is uh, mine ended up being uh, initially a six-inch circle simply because the sizes of the discs... Uh, were all multiples of six. Mm-hmm. I had ones, twos, and threes, basically, as the sizes. So they were all multiples of six. So we'll just make it six inches. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> I ended up changing all of that. I ended up scaling a lot of it down. So it was. Um, it ended up being ones, 1.25s, and 1.5s, or 1.75s. I can't mm-hmm. remember. They've since had to change everything to metric because of where it's being manufactured. So I could not tell you what the current size pieces are. Exactly. I can just assure you that the playtesting that uh, John and Michael did settled on the best pieces based on millimeter sizes instead of imperial, horrible American measurement sizes. <laughs> so it started with you only being able to push from your side of the board because I didn't want people to have to get up from their chair. Mm-hmm. And so if it was side of the board, you could always reach it and it was guaranteed. That was the initial thought. But as soon as three and four player entered the equation, that was no longer feasible. Like I couldn't make that work in a good way because you'd end up with everybody pushing at cross purposes and nothing going anywhere. Yeah. You had to be able to like take advantage of what other people did. And the other thing is that with a circle, I started thinking about, well, players are going to want to get up and move around. Like I was watching people at Origins. I was writing notes furiously watching people play the game. And people would get up and they would circle the board to see it from a different angle hmm. to try and figure out where else to do it. And I was like, so is this a rule that needs to stay or is this just arbitrary? Because it mm-hmm. makes three and four players really painful to try to have to explain or to try to have to play. And it's only really good in two player. What happens if we just get rid of it? And so we did. We just got rid of it. And the game did not suffer for it. 
um, it didn't miss it too much in this case for what we were doing, which was kind of cool. The natural element of not wanting to help each other too much meant that you didn't have people just continually pushing in the same spot trying to knock the same person off because that's just helping everybody else win. Four-player, I never figured out a fun way to do free-for-all. So four-player is teams, and you play with a shared inventory of pieces. So the players get to choose, like, which person is pushing what on. So -hmm. if a team runs out of inventory, they lose as if they were a single player. And if they knock off either of the beetles that belong to the other team, then they win. So you play alternating turns as teams, almost like uh, tornado tag team wrestling in that way. And it just kind of worked. It introduced another social dynamic on top of a game that people were already like, hey, did you see that? Look at this. Get up, walk around the board, look at it. Like all of that stuff as it was um, as it was developing. Teams just ended up working. And I didn't think it would at first. I thought everybody would be upset if they were going to have to work together. They wanted there to be one winner rather than winning as a team. But in our playtesting experience, that's not the case. People get really into it, you know, trying to figure out who's going to do best. And they strategize so much for something that is so outside of their control as to, okay, so I'm going to push this in here and we're going to, and then you're going to come in from here with this piece. And they're planning out, like mapping out how all of their pieces are going to be used and who's going to use them. And then the other team makes a change and wrecks all their plans instantly. And it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and with it, I, I found it interesting with four player in red cap ruckus that people will create, they'll, form alliances and then break those because there is that you you know i can i can get them close if you can push them the rest of the way off but those alliances don't have to stay right and one of the other interesting things of the staying with the you only have a certain section to come in from is sometimes you can't push the piece you really want to but you know the next player can and so you're Mm -hmm. trying to talk them into doing it they're like we both want this person to lose so try and get them to do this and it it also led it also allowed for with the two-player game there are multiple setups you can either play where each player gets a full half of the board to come on from Mm -hmm. you can play where each player gets just their fourth of the board to come on Mm -hmm. from and there are two no man's lands in between Mm -hmm. you or some people really like playing it with the where basically one player gets what would you might consider the north and south sides, and the mm-hmm. other player gets east and west. Ah, so they can so, come in from two different directions. Right, yeah. and you're you're crossing each other's paths. Um, oh, that's and it cool. makes for three very different games. That's yeah, fun. Because I don't I when I first learned about Kabuto Sumo, I actually intentionally decided. I need to not learn too much about this mm-hmm. because I don't want it to sway any design decisions right. one way or the other. I want mm-hmm. Red Cap Ruckus to develop on its own the way it would on its own. And so it's fascinating to learn some of these now and think about the differences, like all the things that happen downstream because of the early design decisions between the size of the board or... Mm-hmm. The, the size of poker chips versus the size of the wooden discs or mm-hmm. that it starts with a, a full board versus an empty board or that yeah. you can control how you're coming on or you have to push straight on. Yeah, I think... And that I'd... so many other things downstream of those were affected by the, the early 
design decisions. Yep. Yeah. And we I, each we each took our own early design decisions and then made the best game from those. But those it was like the uh, it's like the the butterfly wing beat that then creates the storm. Yeah, I was gonna say it seems like a, a testament towards like having an initial kind of vision and kind of set goals for this is. This is what is compelling me to make the game, so I want to make it mm-hmm. fit within, you know, achieve these purposes of this game. And that can guide games that even seem on the surface that they might have a similar hook in significantly different ways. I wanted to transition real quick um, before before we have to end about kind of the perception. So I'm going to draw an analogy. And anyone who knows me and analogies, well, you're in for a shock. <laughs> Uh, so, like, there's not a ton of games on the market that are based on this kind of coin pusher mechanic. Um, Correct. So there's a perception. You know, they're like, oh, I've never seen a game like this. But there's two of them. How much different can they be? Just because the, the audience of people is mm-hmm. less familiar. So the the differences that are not just high-level mm-hmm. surface differences are less clear. But comparable to something like a game with, uh, with dice. That's going to be the analogy I make. Because, like... Coin pushers are one of the things they are strong at is creating some sort of uncontrollable result, similar to how dice do. I'm basically saying your games are dice games. Um, but, <laughs> but, no, but um, but like imagine imagine that there's no games like dice don't exist. Nobody developed dice ever, and then a game comes mm-hmm. out with this this box with dots on it, and you roll it, and it tells you a number that you you weren't expecting. People are like, oh, well, that's neat. Wait, there's there's two games that use these like rolling number boxes. Well, that's that's weird. <laughs> How much different can they be? But you know, that's because it is uncommon enough, and the audience has little enough knowledge about it that it seems similar. Just because it's not as common to have explored the depths. But obviously, <laughs> there are hundreds of games. I mean, maybe even dozens of games that use dice in them, and they're, <laughs> they're even different, you know? Yeah, so, uh, yeah. yeah now what, we have uh, custom dice. We got tired of regular number boxes, and yeah. now we have fancy number boxes. What uh, What are some things or some considerations or things that you think about when it comes to, like, the perception? Because if anything, and this is my gut talk, well, it's my mouth talking literally, but talking off of a, a hunch that uh, figuratively comes from my gut, so the saying goes... There's that, your analogy right there. You finally got to an actual analogy. No. <laughs> that um, anyway, <laughs> that the perception is one of the one of the challenges with the games. What are some thoughts that you have around that? It's it's definitely it definitely is a challenge, and I've like since mm-hmm. Kabuto Sumo has gained more attention, um, especially since the like artwork hit. There's, it's gotten a lot more attention because Quan Chai artwork tends to do that. Um, <laughs> there's been a lot of people now who've been scrutinizing it. And like you said, the initial like assumption is, oh, it's a pushing game. How different can it be from this other pushing game? And so some of the other pushing games on the market that have been brought up completely separate from Red Cap Ruckus, like Push a Monster from Queen Games, a game that I also was not aware of when we were uh, <laughs> when I was initially designing it. Nor was I. Yeah, and what's really funny is, uh, now that I know about Push-A-Monster, I can say they're absolutely nothing alike. Because in Push-A-Monster, your goal is to push stuff onto the board and not knock anything off. Because anything that you knock off scores points for all of the other players. I I think, when you look at them, it's like like if you, to use your analogy, Mark, it's like if you were looking at dice, but you'd never actually rolled any dice. Mm -hmm. Whereas... 
I am so excited to actually sit down and play Kabuta Sumo because I think it's going to be completely different, but I know how much fun it is to roll dice. I know how much fun it is to push discs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just looked up Push a Monster. It looks exactly like both of your games, guys. <laughs> 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 yeah, and then, it basically uh, is. They're all the same. Yeah, and then the other one, uh, not der Magier, um, Uh-oh. I don't, is I'm less another familiar with one. Words. Um, but its goal is to get your piece into the center of the board, the lit center of the board, and you play it in the dark. And the difference between it and all of the other games we have is that you push until you hear something fall off. So it's got a whole different set of rules for how you push a piece mm-hmm. onto the board, and when you stop pushing. Which is really interesting to me that all of these games have very different sets of rules around the same basic action of pushing a disc onto a board. And to your point about dice, like nobody questions a game that has dice being different from another game with dice. Like, there are some instances where it comes up, like a lot of the old roll-and-move games, dice are used exactly the same way in all of those games. But then, once you start encountering things like uh, Castles of Burgundy, or roll-and-write games, or um, games that use dice for combat, like, the dice in Risk aren't used the same way the dice in Monopoly are. They're totally different games. Why would we assume that they're the same just because they both have dice in them? And I think that is something that does exist as a perception, like, and what's really interesting about it is that what I've noticed, and I don't know if this is the same for you, um, UD, is mm-hmm. that once you look at the game and you talk to the person about the differences in the game, the person goes, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, that really is all it takes. Yeah, like it wasn't like it's not they're not coming at it from a place of hostility or like accusing you of like, oh, you stole this game and you're putting your name on it. No, they're coming at it from how is this game any different because it looks the same to me? Yeah. And it's the explanation of the rules and the goals that you have as a player and the the actions that you take on your turn that changes what these games inherently are. And all of them, I believe, are games where you get to have a lot of fun pushing things with other things. As, like, on a fundamental, you know, like the description you gave in the very beginning. Like, if you're 37,000 feet in the air and looking at them, yeah, they all kind of look the same. But the way that they play is what's different. And I think there's plenty of room for all of them to exist side by side the same way games with dice or more to my gamer background, games with cards do. You know, oh, yeah. there's a um, lot of games that come from a 52 card deck. Yeah. yeah. It seems like seems like they should all be the same. Yeah. It's interesting. And, and, I'm, I was about to wrap up. So say what you're going to say. And then I'll I was going to say that um, <laughs> I actually like it makes me think I hope other designers out there start playing with this mechanism because Absolutely. I want to see what else people can do with this because it's a neat kind of randomizer. It is an interesting way to use a physical element in the game, and I want to see what other games designers can do with it. Yeah, it's very tactile and very fun. I actually have a designer who's approached me to say, hey, is it cool if I you know, do something because I really liked Kabuto Sumo, but I want to kind of do this thing with it? And my answer is, oh, absolutely, yes. Yes. Like, do that thing so I can play that game. Exactly. Please. 
if you want to ask about any of the pitfalls that I ran into, I'd be more than willing to help. But again, like with the two of with with our games, I think both of our games benefited from taking their own paths mm-hmm. and they ended up at vastly different destinations. And I think that that's, you know, I'm I'd be more than willing to offer advice, whether it's how to quickly learn how to create a wood shop on your apartment balcony in order to manufacture wooden discs. Uh, or, like that should be uh, common knowledge. I mean, yeah, you would think. Um, <laughs> or you know, other other just questions of like how things behave or what kind of things you should know. Like, first of all, I'll give you a hint: you should have an elevated platform. Yes, that's that is hugely flat, important to adding board, to the delight of the game. A flat board does not work. One, no. it's not satisfying, and two, if you've ever gotten into a rules argument with a six-year-old about whether a piece is out of bounds or not, mm-hmm. it's much easier to just let gravity solve that edge. argument for you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, this has been really neat, and so listen up. I'm glad that we had this conversation. I think that. Uh, it's yeah it's neat just to follow from inception you know what are some of the different inspirations and different goals and different decisions that led from what sounds like a similar start to very different ends and um and you know if anybody's listening out there as a designer and you're like worried about oh this this seems like it might be too similar if you have like a vision and like an intent to a game and you make decisions based off of that the chances that it's going to be the same game that somebody else is making, even if they had a similar inspiration, I mean, it's it's almost certainly just not going to happen. And yeah, just kind of following two games that have, that have taken that path has been has been fascinating to me. So I'm glad that we were able to make this happen. Does anybody want to say anything before we wrap up real quick? Any last words, last, uh, last comments? I just want to say that I'm really looking forward to playing Red Cap Ruckus. And I'm really glad that you guys bent your rule about allowing people from outside the area on the podcast because I had an absolute blast in this conversation and I feel like I learned a lot and I'm really, really excited to see what comes of this uh, out in the community. And and I am so eager to get to play Kabuto Sumo and also eager to play any new games that are just now being developed or will be developed as a response to this conversation or or response to playing one or both of these games, I look forward to trying out some new coin-pushing games and to people embracing things that might feel like uh, someone's doing the same thing as me. Well, if you're different people you're going to be doing completely different things. Yeah, if you, you know, there's go a, where where it points you, you will go somewhere good. There's a song that I've taught my children. I'll sing you all the song that I sing. I guess I have been singing this to them since they were like three, old enough to understand what words mean. Uh, it goes a little bit like this. Different people do different things. Different people do different things. Different people do different things. So deal with it. And that's the song. And I think that's kind of the moral of what you're saying, Yudi. And so different people <laughs> do different this things. This feels like a Sesame Street episode, <laughs> and I love it. There's, we sing a lot of uh, children's songs for our kids, and that is not even my favorite. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll share more of those in the future, I'm sure. Now that I've shared one, I'm, I'm excited to do some more later. <laughs> awesome. I feel like we need to have a sing-along with all of us. (laughs) 
All right, um, Yudi, if anyone wants to get up with you to ask you any questions about uh, Red Cap Ruckus or anything, how could they do that? So, first you have to know that Yudi is spelled U-D-E. And then you can find me on Twitter at Yudi Games, or you can find me on BoardGameGeek, where I'm Yudi, Yudi, Yudi. Yudi, Yudi, Yudi. All right. Tony, similar question. If anyone would like to get up with you to ask you any questions about Kabuto Sumo or anything else, how might they do that? The best place to find me regularly being loud and engaging with the community is on Twitter. I am at Bearded Rogue. That's the easiest place to find me anywhere. If uh, you're not already tired of my voice, you could also find me um, on the Breaking Into Board Games podcast. We're on Twitter there as well as at Breaking Into BG. And um, the other episode of Breaking Into Board Games where Tony and Yudi talked about these games also, we will have the link to that in our show notes. Um, So yeah, be sure to check that. If you're interested to hear a more different conversation about this, check that out. If you want to discuss this episode or talk to us at all, you can visit our guild on BoardGameGeek. You can go to podcast.gdfnc.com. That will redirect you to our guild on BoardGameGeek. We also have a group Twitter account that you can follow at GD of NC, which stands for Game Designers of North Carolina. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye! Bye! Bye!